James, we have a listener question that has come in from everythinghurts.com. You can send in your questions by text or also send in an audio question. And this question is from Jen. Are you ready? Yeah, absolutely. I'm ready. God, I love it when you do this. I love it when you curate one of these that you like. And let's be honest, there's some that you don't. And you just <laughs> throw it to me live. I like I like the feeling. Like, put me on the spot, Dan. Putting you God on knows the spot. I put you on the spot enough. Put me on the spot. Put me on the back. Get me back. Hi, guys. Love the show. I have a question about transparency. I recently passed my oral defense and I'm making revisions to my doctoral thesis and I'm wondering if it would be appropriate to include the examiner's comments in the appendix of the final work. I don't intend to publish any part of the thesis in any journals and the comments and my responses highlight a lot of the nuance in the COVID-specific limitations. I think my advisors will tell me not to go looking for trouble by including it, but I wondered if you think it's worth considering. Thanks for the question, Jen. What an interesting question. Um, so obviously this is somewhere with a, a two-stage matriculation for the end of a PhD. This mm. is somewhere where we're doing an oral defense and the oral defense goes well, which they invariably do because people are well prepared for them. And then there's a published document that comes in the back of that. And there are presumably both like, delivered within the oral presentation and written questions that are raised by the formal examiners. And the examiners have sent those questions to Jen and Jen has diligently answered them. Um, I almost wish there was a little bit more information with this one, Dan, because my my advisors t- will tell me not to go looking for trouble implies something. I mean, I, I got comments on my thesis. I didn't think to include them because I just didn't think to, but I wouldn't <laughs> have had a slightest hair of a problem with doing that. Um, a lot of them were very, like, they were very detailed um, I think there would have been elements within the comments and responses to those that would have been interesting for other people who really want us to dig into a subject. I wonder how that could be considered controversial. So if I'm guessing, it would be the fact that it just makes it a little harder. I guess people need to be contacted. They need to be asked. Maybe they did someone a favor by taking the, the examination in the first place. And maybe it's just sort of non-traditional wherever this question is coming from um, because we have no context for Jennifer. It's presumably Jennifer. Maybe it's just Jen. Maybe it's Jen, sure. with a, maybe it's Jen with a G. This Next was, uh... Jen. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, that, that was my first thing, thinking a bit, a bit more context of where the, where this is from, because that is, is a bit of a red flag. Don't, don't want to cause trouble or my, I'm not sure what my advisors would say. And I was leaning towards what you were thinking in that it's it, it goes against the grain. It's not something I would have considered, um, but I think it could if be interesting. I think if there's, if there's worthwhile remarks that are in that, in general, I mean, we all lean towards a principle of we we don't know what we lose or gain when we do this, yeah? There's only a sort of a probability. But in, let's say, one in a 1,000, one in 10,000 cases, some associated document like this becomes really, really crucial for some specific reason. And it's impossible to predict at the time. 
So what we're doing a lot of the time when we're including details that we think are completely irrelevant for the sake of completeness is hedging against something really interesting happening in the first place. And we see this all the time in research integrity cases where people go, oh, my data from 2012, you don't understand. In 2015, I rolled, rolled it all into a big, long conical shape and stuck it up my ass. So it's probably in a bin in the local hospital when I couldn't retrieve it with a cake fork. And they're like, what would you do that for? Why didn't you just stick it with the paper? Oh, I didn't think to at the time. And because when that's happening, that's a rare occurrence. Most papers are not looked at in that level of detail to that would ever provoke a situation like that in the first place. So I would ob obviously, obviously I would lean towards the side of including it. And also, look, more than that, there's there's obvious echoes of, of how this works in how we think about publications more broadly. As in, there are a lot of journal groups and even publishers and plenty of sort of general academic support for the idea of, can we see the fucking reviewer comments, please? Yeah, I was thinking the same Because thing. the reviewer comments, are, especially, look, if they're bad in general, in general for a, a PhD thesis, I think that being able to see all of the reviewer comments in general would be fascinating. Yeah. Because this is, this is a box that's never actually been broadly opened. We yeah. know that yeah. there's a lot of dog shit peer review. And you've probably been in a few situations where oh, everyone else's <laughs> peer reviews have come in and you've looked at something and gone, this is six lines of shit. I wrote a page and a half yeah, of densely so packed notes to try and improve this motherfucker. You know, I'm making a community contribution here, trying to help someone else out. And this other person who's involved has written, Gudge Job. Oh, done well. It's I the like name of the numbers. bloke, uh, patting the security bloke, pat patting down the people, barely. Yeah, and is mean? referring to a very obscure. That's not obscure. <laughs> it is reasonably <laughs> obscure, Dan, somewhat. because you're describing a visual meme on a podcast, <laughs> and you're also doing it using Quantum Dan, where the fact I, that you've had the thought allows everyone to access <laughs> said security. But card. all our listeners are chronically online, so I, I think they would listeners. If you, if if you, well, some, <laughs> some of our listeners are older than us, Daniel. Let's <laughs> just have a tiny little bit of compassion for the allegedly aged. Right. Yes. Anyway. So, so I do wonder in general, I would think it would be very interesting if that became normal for uh, thesis remarks in general. I think it's a, there's a very high likelihood that even in institutions that we don't trust, from people that we don't trust, from countries that maybe do not have the long history of research integrity bullshit and the academic culture that we would hope is elsewhere, I, I would wonder. I would wonder, but I would suspect that a lot of thesis comments are better than a lot of review comments. I think yeah. they're much less likely to be cursory. Yeah. I think they're much more likely to be from someone who's carefully chosen to be involved with the topic. And they're usually paid. Um, and yeah, and they're usually paid. I mean, they're not paid much, but it is nice to be better, appreciated. Better than the usual the, for peer review. Well, of course, it is. I mean, but it, change, it changes the mechanics of the interaction. You're absolutely right. So it's, it's really it's 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 interesting on that level. I I mean, this is maybe this is our collective naivete. I do not see the controversy in being able to do this. And the the last thing I'd add, Dan, is that I've had different critical remarks and different positive remarks on things that I've written previously. And when I've been able to absolutely smash them back 
You know, this is a problem. No, it's not. And I can prove it nine separate ways. Look at my left ball in particular. You're not going to win here, sunshine. Say yes or get off. You're a bit proud of that a lot of the time. It's nice to feel like you're in command of the material and that part of you wants to see other people recognize or be yeah. able to recognize at the very least that you know what the fuck you're talking yeah. about. <laughs> that would be so good to show. And I think with this, my first thought was, yeah, there could be the pain of getting permission from the evaluator to include the comments. But as long as you, you don't necessarily have to make the identity of the of the reviewer public. So I couldn't really see Well, issue. I think a lot of the time, Dan, they would be listed. So you may if not it's an know oral which defense, review- they will be listed. Yes. So you don't know which, you're saying it's possible you could make sure you don't know which is which. Uh, The the Frontiers model. (laughs) Yeah. So those like three people were involved. Three sets of comments were appended. Do we know which is which? Maybe we don't. Okay. Fair enough. Good point. Yeah. But yeah, our old defenses are not secret, but sometimes you you could conceivably make, if it was just an evaluation via text, you could conceivably get them to be anonymous, but you couldn't really do that for an oral defense because these, these things are typically public and it's typically announced. These are the, these are the um, opponents for this. Yeah, so a lot of the time it's on the frontispiece of the whole document. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> you know, like this was, this was, I mean, mine certainly has all my examiners listed one, two, three, like these people actually read the motherfucker. Um, those are, those are listed on it somewhere but yeah. look, in general. I mean, out of all the, 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 the problems that have, have come in and the things that we've got to choose to talk about, um, this is one of those good problems to have. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. It's not going to be published elsewhere. It's unlikely you're going to hurt anyone's feelings. I mean, if you're not going to publish it elsewhere, it seems reasonably likely that uh, whoever this is, is is not going to go into an academic field. So to be quite honest, if you if you piss off a bunch of academics and you're not going to stay actually in the culture. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's where the supervisor <laughs> comment comes in. It doesn't matter much. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good, great question. Jen, thanks for sending that question in. And anyone oh, else? Nice, 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 sharp, pointed question with a, yes. uh, you know, just enough room for us to wildly speculate and uh, keep the unprofessional and uninformed <laughs> tagline flying at the Chiron. We, we are keeping it going. James, I got a very interesting, e- another very interesting email a couple of weeks ago. And this email was from Retractobot or the Retractobot team. I had not heard of this team or of this concept until I got this email. Let me read it to you. We're writing to let you know that the following papers that you authored cited a paper which has been retracted. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. Please note, we are interested in reducing future citations of retracted papers so your citation may have happened before or after the paper was retracted. And there is a list of two papers for which I'm a co-author and the two papers and the two papers in those papers that have been retracted the year they were originally published and the year it was retracted. Um, and then this is part of a randomized trial. This is a, this is a public website, so I'm not you know re- revealing anything secret. And uh, within this email, I'm asked. I already knew all these papers were retracted. I knew some of these papers were retracted, and I didn't know any of these papers were retracted. And I thought this was very interesting in that, firstly, we tend to think. I think we've previously previously spoken about the very handy Zotero feature when you import an article into Zotero and you were importing a retracted article, it will tell you, hey, this article has been retracted. That's a very useful feature if you were writing a paper. But what do you do when you write a paper at the time these things weren't retracted, but then later on they become retracted? 
what does that do? What does that mean for your paper? So I thought this is a super interesting concept, something I hadn't even considered before because I've only really considered this idea of how do you treat retracted papers or how do you sort of know of that? What do you do if a paper has been retracted after? James, your thoughts on the Retractobot concept? Well, I've got about nine thoughts on okay. this one. Well, that's good. Let's do it. The first, first of all, this it was always possible to do this. It was always possible to because everything is sufficiently messily but reasonably completely centralized. It was always possible to do this. We always had the ability to do it. And now someone's actually finally gone and fucking done it. And that makes me very happy. Do you know who's involved with this? No, One, uh, I don't know the team. Um, ben Goldacre. Oh! Ben, ben um, among others, among others, but Ben Goldacre ben is part ben. of this. Back in action, he stopped harassing people doing shit clinical trial he's still, he's still doing that. He's still, oh, good, 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 good. <laughs> um, yeah, this is uh, – uh, we have not talked about any of the stuff that's been coming out of uh, the Oxford since we had Henry Drysdale on, mm. which was quite some time ago. It was quite some time ago. Um, I know, and there's also probably one of the more – I think if you if you want to be those those are good episodes if you're currently experiencing uh, a degree of cynicism about <laughs> the nature of science and especially the nature of clinical and medical science you should definitely go back and listen to those Drysdale episodes because that'll definitely uh, that'll definitely engender more cynicism <laughs> for you. you 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 have a you have a real good time with uh, just how fly by night like. RCT bullshit can be sometimes. So let's keep going with the first. First of all, great fucking idea. Um, but more than that, someone's actually done the implementation. So so much of being able to do this because no one else is going to help us. Um, so much of being able to do work in this space comes down to do you actually have the money and the will to be able to go out and do this and develop the skills to be able to get it done. Fucking A. Yeah, absolutely. So part of this is really necessary and part of it is a little bit sort of social experimenting because no doubt they're collecting data when it's coming back. So it's, it's quasi-experimental, but it's also like part of the public service. They're also building something that is, is, is right at the cusp of being necessary infrastructure. Right? Well, they're calling it an RCT. Right. Good, 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 good. Okay. So, when you do this, it's very likely that a lot of the people who are receiving an email like the one you got look at it and go, oh, that doesn't change much. Like, let's say you're trying to justify something. You know, we know that I've got a bottle here, I've got a bottle of multi purpose cleaner um, because my, my cats sleep in here with me and I've got to clean the table a lot. It's usually covered with fur and whatever they've been chewing on. Um, so I have multi-purpose cleaner next to the computer. Um, let's say that we have a sentence that says, it's been shown that multi-purpose cleaner has been shown to cause asshole cancer. And the references are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Now you knock out references two and four, fuck all has changed in an omnibus reference, right? It's largely a formatting issue. It's largely a not giving credit to anything that's a problem issue. 
That's at one end of the spectrum. And the other end of the spectrum is something that we face all the time when it comes to meta-analyses and other omnibus treatments of bodies of literature, where 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 is aggregated to form a number out of its subcomponents that's used to make a decision about whether or not something is collectively supported by evidence. And on that basis, there's a huge fucking problem if some of those papers are being retracted, because usually if something like that's being retracted, somebody's making an empirical claim it's like that. It's unlikely to be plagiarism. It's unlikely to be a dispute about authorship. It's unlikely to be duplicate publication. There's all lots of reasons to retract something. If you're going out and making a claim and doing novel research, it's likely that there's a big fucking problem with it. Could be a mistake or a goof. Could be straight up fabrication, could be lost confidence in the author, could be failed to follow conditions of publication in a way that's deeply suspicious, could be a whole lot of things. So if you do this enough, I think the most interesting observation to come from this would be in how many of these cases does it make a really serious difference to some scientific public record? that this was done. And if I was forced to guess, I'd think that that number could be quite high. It could be sort of 10, 20%. You know? I would, Something yeah. that was core to a, a claim or a statement that was made within a paper where if you remove the influence of the retracted paper, some shit is up. Yeah? Okay, i talked a lot. You talk now. So it'll be fun. You'll enjoy it. I looked into why these two papers were retracted. And for those papers in, in my papers that I, that I was co-author on, both of them were retracted because of text recycling, basically self-plagiarism. There was significant, <laughs> <laughs> there was significant overlap between, uh, these papers. Were they, were they empirical papers, Dan? Was this describing a piece of research and then also um, managed to do some text recycling? No. That's less common. I'd imagine these that were, they were more viewpointy, opiniony or reviewy. These were review papers. So these were Got two it. papers I was a co-author on. Um, I think I've been doing the Zotero thing for ages. So if I was a if I was a first author or a senior author, I would have checked these things. But I was, you know, author four or something. So this is not something that I traditionally check the, the the citations. So these were reviews included. Um, you know, within the paper somewhere it would have been, you know, blah blah blah. Cite three papers, and these were among the three papers. Looked into both. Looked into both of them. Both review papers. And both for essentially for text recycling. Um, yeah, I mean, the first thing that came to mind for me was the implications of meta analysis. Although I think if, <laughs> if a meta analysis relies on the outcome of a single paper, that's sketchy already. Uh, in, any good meta analysis should be doing a, a leave one out sensitivity analysis where you look at mm-hmm. what is the like or, or influence analysis going. What, what do we do? What happens to the to to the results if we remove these influential studies. So already, if your meta-analysis holds on one paper, it it is already weak. Um, But I mean, this still could have implications. Yes, true. However, counterpoint, a lot of people to this day who produce meta-analyses are chimpanzees, (laughs) and they do not do that. Yeah. So it could very well. 
Yeah, or, or, or they, they discuss it in text. I mean, you see this all the time, you know. This study had 40 people. This study had 60 people. This study had 3,346 people. It's like, you're fucking meta-analyzing that. The giant study had more people who got lost on their way to the bathroom than there are on the whole other sample, you know. And you see this, and it's like 84% of the, the entire effect size. Yeah, of course it was, you know. Yeah. Like, it's just, just, why are you even bothering? Um <laughs> Yeah, so sorry. <laughs> yeah, so th- this- I still don't like meta analysis. I know. I know. Right. I feel like I have to defend it. <laughs> I know. I know. And I, f- I feel like that's okay. It's just that I need to continually remind you. And, and I also need to remind myself that you're not other people. Yeah. And that you don't have to necessarily fly a personal flag for all the dog shit happen- habits and dog- pointless verbiage of all the other bottom-feeding scoundrels who go around smashing things out allegedly according to the Prisma guidelines and gumming up the works with a whole bunch of faff. Okay, let's say there was an analysis and there was a a set of papers which were retracted from a single lab, let's say, not uncommon, um, and those particular papers then you um, completely change the conclusions. What do you do? Do you get back in touch with the um, with editors going, I no longer have confidence in my paper? At, at what point do you actually say, hey, I'm not confident in my results now that these particular papers... And it also matters on the type of retraction. Um, what if it was... It is very common. One of the things I always teach my students is make sure that the data that you're extracting from two separate papers actually wasn't the same data set. So quite often, this happens a lot. The, the authors are being very sketchy about actually saying, we've previously reported this. They're actually reporting. And the only way you can figure this out is they have exactly the same sample sizes and the data was collected at exactly the same, same time. What if mm-hmm. one of these papers was retracted for um, uh, for, um, for for text recycling? Like it, I think it, the type of retraction makes a difference. And unfortunately, the details for retractions can sometimes be bad. You would know woefully, woefully deficient. There's like yet another thing where if there isn't internal pressure to change a piece of publication culture, it will never be changed because the people who fund and run it don't give a fuck. Universities don't give a fuck. Publishers don't give a fuck. They just they just don't care the way that we care. And even though it's allegedly their infrastructure and they make all the money, if we don't do all of the changes, then nothing actually gets changed. So, you know, it's a, my, my, I think everyone knows what I think about this, this particular point in time. So what do you do is a very interesting question. And I imagine that there, the messy answer to this is some combination of recency. Was it two years ago? Was it 10 years ago? God forbid, was it even longer? I mean, it depends a lot of the time. I think the median retraction for something is probably the time frame that it takes. I think, I think, my memory of this is hazy. The time frame is usually not that long. There's usually not a lot of, I mean, a lot of it is like, months rather than years you know um well one of my papers was five years between re- publication and retraction okay, one of the ones right. in- sure 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 but but i, I do agree it's I, in general I think, it's quick 
I think that um, I think that if this is the case, then there's a number of things that you could do. You could invite people to do the whole thing again in a contemporaneous concept, in a contemporaneous context, and put a new version into the same journal. Because there's no point disadvantaging the authors like out of reflex by definition. Just just make people unwilling to cite anything at all in case the fucking paper goes bye bye later on. You know? What if you cite two hundred things and then two of them eventually become retracted in a contentious field? Like you've you've got no fucking chance. Like if it was just a matter of this domino kind of thing, like it's just gonna start clearing out a whole bunch of shit that uh, that that isn't directly related. Um the original paper uh could of course be edited in situ years later. Um, it could be, it could be corrected, but I think the easiest way, the easiest way to do it is to give people the opportunity to do something immediately. That's a contemporaneous version of the same thing with a note that says this is replacing the old one, the same way that you do with a fucking Cochrane review. I mean, there's a myriad of problems with the Cochrane reviews and I don't like a lot of them. But they have hit upon one very obvious idea, and it's that people are interested in fixed questions over time. There's not always new questions to answer, you know? Does does the fantastic house spray give you the cancers? Well, five studies say no. Seven studies say no. Nine studies potentially say yes if you're under the age of 12. It's the same question over and over again. And as a consequence, they update the existing knowledge that's on something, and that model in principle, is fine. It's a good idea. So you could always, with the old one, rather than retracting it or being able to flag it itself and say this result is unreliable on the same basis, I mean, RetractoBot it could be immediately followed by CytoRetractoBot. Um, <laughs> uh, but you could, I mean, you could slap a big fat editorial expression of concern uh, on the original paper and hope people saw it. Um, it would be hard for the journal to chase that down themselves or like who would be responsible for making sure that that it's in, in itself, if it wasn't accurate, wasn't cited. The problem is probably not, it's probably not the authors. I mean, authors have a tendency to move on, change areas, leave academia, etc. I think a median paper that's 10 years old usually involves a, a lot of people who aren't fucking there anymore. I mean, it depends. Like I'm kind of uh, thinking about laboratory science and talking about things like that. You know, a lot of junior people do the work and then a lot of junior people move around or leave, right? Um, so it is, it, is, it is a very interesting question. Um, I think at an absolute minimum, you do it does need to be annotated if something like that happens. It should be normal to be able to annotate something like that. And then of Even course, if it's rather it, it benign, should, like my case? Well, yeah, then there's an expression of concern. You look at the expression of concern and then it goes, we don't expect this to change fuck all, but at least people know the damn thing is there. Damn. Okay, okay. If you, if, you see, if you see a paper, I mean, this is exactly the sort of thing, editorial expressions of concern, right? 
they're not for like oh the entire paper's fucked and we don't trust it but we're not going to retract it because we're fucking lazy cowards it's not for that it's supposed to be for things like this it's supposed to be the fact that an editor can append a piece of information that puts the paper into context not so they can weasel out of having because yeah. someone threatens to make their life legally difficult to come around to their house and stick their dick in their mailbox this is what it's for to be able to put new information that throws something else to light but doesn't really change the paper on the fucking paper. And if you read a paper that's got a correction or an EOC, 100% of the time I check that if I encounter yeah, it. I'm curious. Journal website or PubMed. Yeah, 100% of the time. And you know what? 85% of the time it's some benign shit. Like, oh, we forgot two references down at the thing and then we felt bad, so we wrote to the fucking editor. A lot of it is like that. Yeah. A lot of it is nothing. So no one's going to go, oh, this work group with this Quintana fellow, what a prick. Uh, <laughs> they cited something that was retracted years later and they didn't have a time machine to be able to go and predict what would happen <laughs> in the future. Who is this? Who is this Mexican bastard and his lack of time machine? <laughs> I think the expression of concern option is super interesting because all publishers or most publishers have the facility for this. I think when it comes to what stuff can we change, we have to think about what's realistic. And this is the sort of thing, let's use the infrastructure which already sort of exists and doing an expression of concern for this kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, it takes some time, but the system is there. I like this versioning system, Cochrane. Um, F1000 sort of has something like this. Um, Zenodo as well, OSF, when you're doing preprints, it's very clear, well, not, not super clear, but if you want to look, you can actually see the different versions of documents. But we seem to have not have cracked this nut for for most publishers and for no, and for we most. We haven't. Journals. We haven't, Dan, because it, as many startups and futurists and academics who are interested in the future and digitally capable people have noted over a period of many years, the whole idea of having just some clump of shit that stays there forever and becomes an in, inerrant and immovable part of a record over time is not how we think about knowledge. We're literally producing a different, a poorly organized version of the same information by putting research into a public domain of knowledge in the way that we chose to do it in the literal 16th century. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. Did, uh, did I tell you I was writing something recently and I thought I'm going to go back in the Royal Society archives to, to uh, episode number one. Does like it go? The have they, have they scanned it? Have they gone the whole way back? Yeah, yeah. So you can you can read papers, scientific papers from the 16th century. And they're fucking funny. There's one that's literally by Charles Boyle, aka the father of modern chemistry, that's called An Account of a Monstrous Cough. And it's basically like, Larry like, down the road had a cough, and the cough is fucking weird, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's got gills and a trunk and two tails, and it's got nine kidneys. And if you'll forgive a Father Ted reference, instead of a mouth, it's got four asses. <laughs> um, and it's just it's just a three quarters of a page description of the fact that some guy had a manky cow. That would have gone into <laughs> science in, in the seventies. Yeah, <laughs> if you knew the editor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so that 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 idea, that idea that we're going to have these discrete units over time, where we're going to accrue knowledge over time. That's not the sort of living, the, not a living body of knowledge like that. In its at its core, yeah, it forms one. It has reference to 
a living body of knowledge, but you have to reconstruct the time frame and the pieces and the everything else as it happens over time. Yeah? It's not a matter of you can go immediately to what the best evidence is for something. It's not a matter of the same result has been updated several times. I mean, it'd be really interesting to see what happens. I mean, you, you see this sometimes in Cochrane sorts of things. Here's what we used to think, and then this happened, and then this happened, and this happened, and this is how the thinking has evolved over time on this particular question. I, I think that's I think that's really interesting. Um, oh. So, I mean, like, far be it for me to take everything, just complain about the way that we organize information and how utterly archaic it is and how there's absolutely no impetus whatsoever to do anything better. Um, this, is, this is not an insoluble problem. It's just a matter of who's going to get the distinct displeasure of having to try to solve the motherfucker. That's that's really all there is to it. I mean, this is this this is a really good idea. This is a really good idea. I I, I hope that I hope that the emphasis that could come out of something like this could coalesce strongly on areas where these later to be revealed as problematic papers are directly influencing previous statements. So, I mean, that would be some work. It would largely be some omnibus measure of, of, of an effect size, probably. Because, look, we've noted this in the sort of fraudy literature. One of the problems with total dog shit in the grey literature, where, you know, you see all this... Uh, you see all this paper mill output now. And you see lots of garbage output, and it comes from, and it shouldn't be trusted. Like it has hallmarks of un, un, untrustworthiness. But you get these people, and they come in and they do their little search, and they follow their prismas, and then they line everything up, and they're forced by some combination of blind inclusion, lack of criticism, the desire to be even-handed, and just plain fucking stunning naivete to just jam all this stuff in together and to not really assess whether or not any of it's any good. So you see meta-analyses that cite six real papers and two total bags of shit. And the authors feel good about that because they're including everything that's available <laughs> and not exercising the slightest critical faculty. And you look at the two bad ones and you go, oh, this is just, this is fraudulent from across the room. This C is terrible. Three. We, should, we need to write, you need to write to the, 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 the fucking journal. And these results like this contaminating literature, when this is bad, I mean, when we were talking about Jen's example before, so there's, there's a one in, maybe there's a one in a thousand chance that something like this will become relevant later on, and when it does, it'll become really relevant. Well, these are those examples. This is what happens. This is what happens when that shit isn't policed by someone who knows what they were doing and why fucking amateurs shouldn't be out there doing meta-analysis. You know, the risk of bias is low. Yeah, well, the risk of it being total fucking bullshit is nearly 100%. <laughs> I guess that's right? another plus of, of living meta-analyses, as well as adding effect sizes. You can also remove effect sizes because the evidence, or at least uh, the evidence that should be included, has changed. 
Well, yes, it's also tremendously supportive of the idea, especially if the data is not available, the authors won't talk to you. You should be able to use forensic matter scientific tools to be able to tell whether or not there's something that's an actual problem with the paper. Mm. I mean, a lot of the time it's going to be really binary, like it's completely fucked and it should be very straightforward and obvious or it's going to be either perfectly fine or sufficiently obscure that it would be really difficult to tell, in which case it's definitely not your fault. You did your diligence, shit happens in the big city. That's fine. But this is the problem with garbage pail meta-analysis is that it gets contaminated by fake shit, and there's an awful lot of fake shit in literature. I mean, mm. last year was a record year for retractions, Dan. Do you know why? Mass retractions. Paper yeah, mails. because of the mass retractions at Hindawi, a brand that is now so compromised, Wiley have chosen to just forget it completely and roll all the Hindawi journals into their own journals. But for some of them, I don't know what they're going to roll in because like three quarters of the <laughs> journal is retracted. They're starting from scratch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gee. And the last time, the last time I looked at the uh, last time I looked at the, uh, the the retraction, the volume in the um, in the in the Hindawi record, it's thousands and thousands of papers, right? And that's happening in a year, and that's just the one we fucking caught. That's just yeah. the things that we know about. It's just because those journals were not so much asleep at the wheel, but turned around facing the back of the seat with their legs around the chair going into the back seat, asleep upside down with their head falling backwards onto the horn, which still did not manage to wake them with the seatbelt tied around their balls and one arm hanging out the window. Utterly, utterly clueless. And while they were in the process of being this clueless, Wiley bought them for hundreds of millions of dollars. <laughs> That's that's where our collective critical faculties are. Yeah, there were problems. There were mass problems on pub here with the Hindawi journals well before anyone from Wiley ever thought to turn up with three hundred million squid. It's a. Uh, this is this this is the environment that we've created for ourselves, and now and now we have the mass adoption, not the existence of, but the mass adoption of and accessibility of the horseshit generator, aka the large language model. And before you can say anything, like bear in mind that more than half of the entire scientific corpus, as it exists, is open access. It can be scraped. Preprints are very obviously open access. There's in, in many respects now, there's uh, the preprint volume is higher than uh, paper volume. All of this can someone is someone is going to write a scientifically specific that, or someone out there is already working on this a Absolutely. scientifically specific horseshit generator. Yeah, the big horseshit engine, and they are working on this right now. And they're going to be slightly curated and significantly reduce the investment of making bespoke horseshit. Yeah? Because no one's going to put this in the public domain. They're going to get it all sorted, keep it for themselves. Because, you, you know, you take all the public stuff and then you need to add a layer of value to any given enterprise. So uh, you need to keep everything else private. And having done that, they will use it to just go to town on being able to make fake bullshit. Mm. 
it is it is going to break since we all got interested in large language models i've been reasonably convinced that this may be the point where something some center of our collective ethos where we're so concerned with how many things did you do is going to have to change because we've decoupled volume from quality. It's possible to do lots of high-quality work. It's possible. It's just backbreaking and awful. And then sort of like by definition exclusionary and holds a standard up where a very small amount of people get rewarded and then they're the people who have the time, energy and resources to be able to meet that standard in the first place. And it's going to have to, it's going to have to change. Now, I've, done, I've, now I've not veered too far off topic because what we're talking about is like if we have tools like this, we can mitigate some of the outputs of this. But bear in mind, if you're going to detect retractions, then shit has to be retracted in the first place. So I see a very important role for something like this, especially if it's completely automatic, especially if you can figure out a way to do this with a minimal human context. Something gets retracted, the bot picks up the retraction, it finds all the right people to write to, it writes to all of those people. Um, and it may also, I mean, and on a good day, it may be able to flag which of those matter. Like, for instance, if you're just pulling PubMed entries, you can find what the, uh, there's a, a field in PubMed that says what type of article is it. Having identified the field, there's obviously risk profiles for different things, right? So, you know, the bot says this is super important to the paper, so Mr. Editor, you need to check it. The bot says this is super unimportant to the paper, so Mrs. Editor, I don't think you need to do fuck all, but you should be aware. Have a good day. I always wonder whether in a couple of years' time, people who are coming up in academia right now are going to have some sort of disadvantage. I mean, early career academics are already incredibly disadvantaged against more senior types, but is it going to be this thing where in, say, 10 years' time, Someone comes up and people are going to go, well, maybe they're good or maybe they just use large language models to write their papers compared to the senior types that are like, well, they built their career before large language models. We know they can do this stuff without their help. Whereas the younger types, people are going to go, well, you know, they, they could be good. I, I always wonder about this. Mm, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very good question, you know. Like, for instance, I'll give you an equivalent example, which is you'll find a little bit funny. Okay. Uh, there are people on the internet who are maybe obsessed is the right word with the physiques of athletes before 1955-1960 because they did not take anabolics they did not have ergogens because they didn't exist okay so you can be absolutely certain that 
whatever like whatever time they ran or however they looked you know so it's like oh look at the he's got a particularly thick back it's very strange as a subculture all these allegedly straight men talking a photo <laughs> about another man and, and admiring admiring him in great detail there's like the the how much your bench bra thing is very real on the, the natty internet. bro the natty and yeah all, all all that all that all that shit so you're saying there's going to be just just a categorical definition of a uh, like pre pre post 2019. That's well, interesting. I mean, okay, it, yeah. it, it is. It, it may maybe maybe uh, it's possible. There's there's a few levers here that we have to push one way or another. The first thing is the basic detectability, right? So I am very unclear now as to whether or not we can well detect whether an individual piece of text was written by a person or an LLM, I think probably depends an awful lot on what you're asking it to write on the context. Mm. Um, and, of course, you don't know which one it was, so there's no way to provoke something similar. Like, say you've got a private text and something like this, and uh, the the whatever LLM you're using is not privy to a public copy of a paper being assessed. So let's say we're in review and then you ask it to produce exactly the same text and then it produces exactly the same text. Hmm. I think it's still not really good enough. Yeah. It's not really good enough. So and then there's all these sort of, I, I do not understand this on a computational level because I've seen people swear blind that it absolutely 100% does work and other people swear blind that it absolutely 100% does not. Can we detect the text if we don't know where it came from? We don't have any comparative examples. We are unsure of – we don't know anything about the author. Uh, so the answer there is I'm not sure. We're going to get some pretty second, savage Matthew effect. Second, second the, the attitude towards, like, did this need to be written in the first place is going to change. Maybe one of the things that would be really good is if we have infinite access to things like reasonable AI-driven summaries of any given amount of source material. Maybe, maybe one of the best ways, one of the best things that that could do is prevent the fucking need of so many people insisting that they'd write an opinion paper themselves. Go, I don't need you to write a fucking opinion paper. I can just go to a prompt query and have an opinion paper written. It's good enough to do that. We don't need documents that are pretending to do that. Now, this That's doesn't do much for- interesting perspective. Well, I mean, it just doesn't do much for things like uh, your undergraduate is cheating on your essay or your master's thesis is, is full of shit, right? But it does help for the, the, the scientific record. You're saying, what's the, okay, so you know, CRISPR-Cas9 was discovered here, and then this changed, and now we have this particular variant of it. Um, what do we know about Cas12 versus Cas9? It's only Bill's machine that actually answer that shit accurately, and God knows it's fucking awful. The LLMs are so bad with numbers because they produce things where the numbers are, the numbers are not numeric. They're like language elements out of context. So it doesn't know what four means. It just knows that four has a tendency to come after, and there was a mean of, and it it can't it can't do that shit. But the point in time where it can, I think the need in many contexts to write a review paper has gone completely down the toilet. 
Yeah. That's, I never considered that. I think it's really interesting. Well, it has to work. It has to work real good. I mean, at the point in time where you do this and you say, like, you take 100 review papers and then you probably need a few years on this. Well, let's say 2026, give or take. And then you take 100 similar topic or identical topic, AI-generated review papers, and then you ask people who really know what they're talking about, uh, first of all, like who who wrote what? Which one is better? And when it's a wash and they can't guess who wrote what, and the AI stuff is better, I think we're starting to reach because review papers aren't fucking perfect. Whole idea of oh, it's not human curated. I mean, it's the, the the same problem with watching cars drive. I mean, it's very very difficult for to make a self driving car. But if you live in Boston, you you there is a natural tendency. Look, regardless of what the research says, there's a natural tendency to look around at the way people drive cars and go, well, surely we can do a robot better than that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Except when the robot crashes. That, that, that guy's a gibbon full of drugs as far as I can tell. <laughs> what, the, what the hell was that? I had someone I reckon, to try and kill me the other day for fun while I was out driving. Dan, you told me a robot can't do better than that guy? Yeah. I, I reckon right. we're at least we're five years away. Uh, we're, we're five years away from large language models being able to do a review paper. You give it to another expert, compare it to a human, and they're going to have a lot of difficulty actually telling the difference. I think we're pretty close. And is that going to make re- review papers redundant? Perhaps it's going to devalue well, review papers. I've always, I've, it's it's not going to make them redundant. It's going to make them a lot less important. I think a lot of yeah. places are just going to start because it's also like if you want something to, if you want just pointless verbiage in order to get an academic reward, they're much ain't much better than a review paper. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but a lot of concepts that would go into something like that will not be immediately apparent to like, no matter how good the context is, it, it's just not going to be able to, uh, discover the, like the, the linguistic complexities of something like that are much, much higher than write me a pretend bedtime story that I can read to my fucking kids. Yes. Um, and the very first chat GPTs, I told it to generate a children's story just to see whether it did. And it did a fucking a better job than the shit I see my friend's kids reading. You're like, oh, most, you most, big, most you books. You've got a, you've got a big red apple? Shut up. Shut up with your big red apple. No one cares about your fucking apple. What are you, a tiny greengrocer? Ridiculous <laughs> child. Ridiculous child. Get down off the kitchen counter. Stop reading about apples. Have this book on large language models. Listen to this podcast. <laughs> We're going to wrap up this episode. Thanks to Jen for sending in their question. And Thank you, Jen. Anyone else, everythinghurts.com, text question or audio question, and we'll play your question on the show. Until next week, see you later. Bye-bye.